This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Last week, President Biden addressed Congress to stump for his latest proposal, the American Families Plan. If passed as is, the initiative would do some of the following. Provide universal preschool for all three and four-year-olds. Offer two years of free community college to young adults. Cover childcare costs for families in poverty. Set a $15 minimum wage for early childcare workers. Mandate 12 weeks of paid parental, family, and personal illness leave. Make a summer food program serving children from low-income families permanent. Now we wanted to dive deeper into Biden's proposal. What is it trying to address? Who is it trying to serve? What changes should Christians see as wins for their own families and for their neighbors? And where should they push back or critique? You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Executive Editor at Christianity Today. All right, Ted, as you can tell from the brief summary that I read of this proposal, it this is a very ambitious proposal and there's a lot of things happening here. But when you first heard it and from the stuff that you've read right now, what type of reaction did you have to it? Well, you know, whenever a big project like this is proposed, part of me <laughs> just nods and says, well, that, that's nice, especially with Congress as it is, you know, there's a lot of ambition here, but there's been a lot of major proposals like this. And I was like, well, we'll see what, what, you know, what the legislation write up actually ends up being and what gets negotiated and what ends up. Cause you know, there's like some, any one of those things you mentioned would be a huge, huge, huge deal. You mentioned about six or seven things there, a plan that would put, you know, all of them together that strikes me as big, epic, you know, New Deal sized, <laughs> uh, massively restructuring, you know, the way America works in some ways. But you know, there are some things in there that I'm like, mm, I don't know, I don't know. That's that that might be a little that might be a, a little big for the government right now. Some things in there that I'm like, yeah, let's let's get that let's get that going. So, family leave is an area that I'm I'm personally fairly passionate about. So that's kind of where my ears perked up. You know, the, the question about <laughs> free community college. Wow. I was like, man, that, that will remake uh, higher education in so many ways. And I was very curious about how Christian colleges would respond to that. And so we've got a story being reported out in Christianity on that that will be published soon. I have over, over my years become much more interested in the ways in which both social discussions and government programs have shaped the way that I parent myself, uh, the way in which I just perceive what's normal in, you know, parenting. Oh, you know, these things kind of are shaped by big ambitious government programs sometimes. Sometimes they, they happen, you know, bottom up. Sometimes they happen from kind of changes in industry. So I'm like, oh yeah, well, we might remake kind of what we assume is normal in, in parenting with this. So for good or ill. And honestly, this is a perfect kind of quick to listen thing because I have gut reactions and reflexes to it. 
but the specifics of the Biden policy, I just haven't had the opportunity to like, you know, really dive into and be like, I should think about this. So yeah, I'm, that's why I'm glad we're doing the podcast. So this isn't something that I have like prepared 20 hours for, and I'm going to tell you all of what, <laughs> you know, the executive editor of Christianity thinks about Biden's plan. This is like, I want to listen to someone who knows stuff. How about you? How about you, Morgan? This is one of those times where I'm like, this is cool. I have a job with a microphone and I can talk about something. I'm deeply curious. And I think when I was doing research for this proposal, it really struck me about how insular, how I understand work a lot of times. And what I mean by that is that when I'm comparing what my work benefits are, I guess, or the type of leave that I'm offered, I'm often comparing it that against other people who are also professionals as well. And reading through some of these numbers about the amount of Americans that have no access to any leave or have no guaranteed access to leave was kind of a wake-up call, I guess, for how tough it is for so many other people in these same places. And as I started reading through this overall, it just made me realize what bad shape we're in in so many ways with the ability for people to care for their families and that may come in the form of not being able to afford childcare. I think that also comes in the form of not being able to pay childcare workers well. And yeah, the fact that, <laughs> I, I know we'll talk about this today at length, the fact that many people are not able to necessarily get leave to take care of their families is really upsetting in many ways. I'm really interested in talking about that. A lot of the stuff does end up talking about what the government's role is in the lives of preschoolers in many ways. That's another thing that is talked about here. And when you're talking, Ted, about different assumptions that you've made, one of the kind of norms that we have in our society, right, is that schooling is appropriate for five-year-olds and that's kind of how things are, right? And I'm interested in going deeper and unpacking, you know, where do some of those expectations that we have about where children should be come from you know, what does that look like to scale that? The final thing would be kind of like, when do you not want perfect to be the enemy of good? You know, there's a lot of idealism that comes up in family conversations a lot, but not everyone has the same access to the same ideals. Where's the government supposed to fit in with regards to that? So who is our guest to chat about all these things today? Our guest is Rachel Anderson. She is a resident fellow with the Center for Public Justice. She leads the Families Valued Project there. Her work at Families Valued focuses on work and family policy, so right exactly what we're talking about, and faith-based civic engagement. If you're not familiar with the Center for Public Justice, it's one of my favorite organizations. They, they just have done so much interesting work over the years on public policy, on religious freedom, on the way in which you know, family and public policy connects, especially the ways in which religious organizations and government can work together and what safeguards should be, should be involved with that. Family is another institution where we're talking about how the government and families might intersect, you know, what safeguards we need to have in there, how things can be made better when when these things are, are connected. So, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on Quick to Listen. Thanks for inviting me. All right, Rachel. So we first want to start just by talking about this actual proposal that's out there. Can you tell us a little bit more about the types of families that Biden's proposal is trying to reach? So I can start by focusing on just four of the family policy elements. You mentioned a, you know, a lot of elements in this proposal and three of which are very child focused. So first the plan calls for 
the child tax credit, which has been increased over the past several years, to be extended, you know, for the increases that we've seen recently to stay available for families going into the future. The plan calls for a national policy of paid family medical and sick leave. The plan makes a number of promises about childcare, including finding a way to cap the cost of care at 7% of a household's income and finding a way to provide universal pre-K. And I also want to note that in the previously announced American Jobs Plan, Biden also called for expanding long-term care and access to home and community-based services for those who are aging and disabled. And I just highlight that because although we'll probably be talking a lot about the child-focused policies, there is kind of an intention in these plans to look at the range of caregiving that takes place in families and also the, you know, the role and the well-being of those who are providing care, whether it's through home care or child care. And I think that's important. When we're thinking of who the target audience is for these plans, what type of families come to mind? Are we thinking of families that are mostly low income, low income and middle class? How would you kind of identify them? Given the range of policies that are introduced, I think there was an attempt to offer something that's universal or near universal. But there are some specific policies that, you know, we know something about how they'll affect families. So for example, sustaining those increases in the child tax credit and making it refundable, you know, we know that that would meaningfully reduce the number of children who experience poverty and material hardship. So that's something that we know will have significant benefits for low-income families. We also know like the parental part of paid family leave has well-established positive benefits for children and their families, and particularly those households who don't have access to paid leave through their employers. So we know that there's a measurable increase in time a parent can spend with their child, time breastfeeding, all that kind of stuff for young children that would be brought about through that paid family leave policy. When we think of family life for people who are poor or in working class socioeconomic status, what are the specific challenges that they are going through with regards to family life? What makes them unique? We do have families in the U.S. who are struggling with, you know, material hardship, keeping a roof over their heads, avoiding eviction, putting food on the table. That has been exacerbated during the pandemic. In December, there was a kind of a snapshot that indicated more than one in five parents reported that their household experienced food insecurity that month. So we know that there are kind of acute challenges for families. We also know that for families who are at low income and kind of in low wage jobs, a host of challenges arise around staying connected to work, managing work and family that I think are kind of unique. Some of them are kind of brought about by how our current public programs are structured and what's offered in the workplace. So for example, a pregnant mother whose story I came to know through neighborhood ministries in Arizona was told by her employer that she could only take a few weeks off when her child was born. So she wasn't offered protected time off. She wasn't offered any paid leave. and She needed that job to pay the bills. So she elected to keep the job and go back to work just a few weeks after her child was born. And that's true for a lot of, a lot of positions, low-wage positions, where the kind of benefits that would make it possible to be present, even at a key moment with a new baby or a sick child, aren't there. And parents may sometimes elect to keep the job because they just have to. 
or sometimes end up leaving the job because the family need is too significant. That just creates a lot of churn in and out of the workplace um, and a hard time kind of building up a work record. I've also talked to parents who are really frustrated by how benefits programs do work. So for example, subsidized childcare or Head Start can be available for some low-income households. But then when a parent receives a promotion, maybe with a raise or more hours, or maybe they get married and combine incomes, they may lose their eligibility for that benefit, even though they're still really relying on it to provide for their family. So they're kind of, again, forced into a situation of choosing between family stability and workplace stability and an income. A lot of low-income families are really making tough choices around providing stability for their family, but also maintaining their economic livelihood. It seems to me that in answering some of that, that there's some divide or maybe there's just pushback or maybe there's just a, a reflex where the, the discussion kind of comes down to some folks saying, yeah, we need more programs that enable, you know, childcare and some folks that are just saying like, you know, offer kind of a, a benefit, give parents more money when they have kids and then they'll use that money to take care of their kids, whether it's for childcare or whether it's the ability to stay home. You know, David Brooks had an interesting column about that this week and I've seen some other things. Is that kind of some of the main kind of breakdown here? I'm just curious about, is the main fault line on some of these questions between increasing programs that would allow for childcare and also, you know, things like having more government programs taking care of kids versus direct benefits of parents, depending on the number of kids that they that they have. So what's interesting about the Biden plan, it kind of does all of the above. Maybe one of the first times we've been offered all of those options together. Prior to that, I think the debate was often, should any of them be enhanced? Right? It's been usually piece by piece, and each time there are objections. So it'll be interesting as we kind of go forward in this debate about the American Families Plan to see if there is a desire to kind of divide up and say, well, some of us think these direct cash kinds of programs are the way to go. And others think that the investments in programs like childcare are the way to go. It seems like some people want to have that as a dividing line. Whereas, you know, the package is actually all of the above because, <laughs> because there are a lot of, you know, a lot of needs and a lot of things going on in a parent and a family's life. Given that there have been relatively small investments in this area and data like we have from the USDA that says it costs about $13,000 a year for a family to raise a child. There's possibly room from the perspective of a family to absorb multiple benefits. Um, of course, then we'd have to have the conversation about how much of that is part of a public program, right? And part of something that revenues are raised for and public spending is, is doled out for. I was interested in something that you had mentioned on Twitter recently, which was talking about the way in which churches have addressed some of these issues, you know, apart from the state, which was that churches have been pretty involved in that early care. Like thinking about all the numbers of, of preschools and early childhood centers that are run by, you know, churches around, around the country. Long story I wanted to do for CT is, you know, why the Lutherans are so particularly so good at these uh, preschools and, and kindergartens. There's so many, so many good Lutheran preschools around. And I think, you know, there's, there's a certain view of the church community taking care of, of these children 
together. And so there is that kind of discussion about the nuclear family childcare and wanting to help that and give a lot of attention to that, but also wanting to also empower, you know, when people need to work, there is also a desire for there to be a, a community, especially a church community, stepping in to help that to happen. How that shapes a healthy Christian view on public policy and how the role that churches have played in early childhood might help to shape our view of public policy on these kind of big initiatives. I really love that topic. And I also appreciate you lifting up the Lutheran experience because I'm a product of Lutheran parochial education. Part of my experience as well. It's very widespread and yet kind of goes unmentioned a lot in policy debates. The last good data that I've been able to find is from Baylor, and it's several decades old. Um, No one has done a similar one since, but it indicated that somewhere between 20 and 30% of childcare facilities were associated with a religious congregation. So in some cases, they were run by the congregation and fully expressive of that congregation's beliefs and teachings. In other cases, there was kind of a a lighter touch relationship or even a child care operating as a tenant in a church building or a congregational building. But it's really common. And even there, that kind of in the last instance, the least connected to the institution, those child care programs often end up helping to support the church and connecting the church to the community, bring in revenue. So it's all kind of part of church life in many ways. And that's a pretty big part of our child care infrastructure. I'd love to see more mention of that. I just, I think it hasn't been fully fleshed out because the conversation has taken place at a kind of a broader, perhaps more ideological level that thinks about childcare as something occurring outside of the home and maybe even outside of one's faith community and religious community, when in fact, many parents do choose to send their children to child cares that are associated with their religious tradition. And many child cares are provided or, and are cited in a kind of a family-based setting. And there, whether kind of formally or informally, I suspect religion is, is often part of a motivation and part of the just ethic of care that providers offer. Do we have a sense yet about whether this Biden plan would affect those? I mean, would it, would it be, be likely to create a grander, you know, competing system of early childhood, like, you know, you know, more state preschools that then would compete for people with church preschools? Or would this be a sense where we might see more private public partnership on early childhood care? I think it's hard to say right now. And I, and I think I'd say an area of disappointment that I have with the plans as, you know, as broadly conceived as they are at the moment, is I don't think they've contemplated enough the way that childcare can happen in partnership with local organizations, local faith-based organizations. So I would really like to see that more articulated in the kind of the broad policy confines in how the policy is structured, if that remains part of what is, you know, enacted into law, as well as how the administrative bodies are are regulating this area, right? It would probably be in the um, HHS. So I think there's a lot that needs to be looked at there. Traditionally, CPJ has seen childcare funding in the form of vouchers as being, you know, more accessible to families using that childcare where they using that voucher where they'd like to use it. Maybe taking it to a, you know, faith-based entity 
you know, or one that's consistent with their their family's worldview. And so in the, the same would go here. And I haven't seen enough detail to really say in the childcare component, how much of an emphasis there will be on, on the voucher structure. Right. I, I, would, I would anticipate that, that that would be a bit of an, an uphill battle, but a lot of this yeah. probably will be an uphill, yeah. an uphill battle, yeah. I, I, would, I would think. So that maybe, yeah. you know, maybe it's like, you give me this, I'll give you that. that who knows? Since we're already talking a little bit about religious organizations and that, and that kind of thing, there's a number of organizations and ministries that represent Christian families or that, or that claim to represent Christian families or that are you know, family-focused in any way. What types of stances they have taken on, not, not, not necessarily the Biden plan, particularly because that's, as we said, a little bit embryonic, but some of the issues that, that this thing raises, what in some of these Biden proposals would represent things that some of these faith-based family organizations have been, have been pushing for? It's like, oh, hey, there's, there's our issues right there. So historically, Christian family-focused policy has oriented itself towards getting more money into families' pockets so that families can use it as they wish to. That's often happened in the form of tax cuts. Kind of policy observers are, are starting to say, like, there's not so much more that can be done in that area. But the child tax credit component is a pretty good extension of that approach and that philosophy, and I think has been kind of widely embraced. So the child tax credit component of the Biden plan, potentially the kind of the even more generous child allowance ideas proposed by Senator Romney earlier this year, kind of make their way into the debate. And that could be, you know, really seen as a, an extension of that kind of direct-to-family support approach. And that would be a great thing. It would afford families, especially if it's made refundable, it would afford families at all income levels, a level of financial security and the freedom to invest those resources in a way that is consistent with how, how their family wants to operate, whether it's a parent working part-time or in the home or one parent working out of the home. I do hope those organizations see the paid family leave component as a win as well, because I think it is. It really reinforces the family care, the ethic of family care, and the priority on parent-child bonding. I know that Center for Public Justice, and and in particular you, have done a lot for talking about the Christian side of paid family leave. A few years ago, you authored a report with a former Quick to Listen host, Caitlin Beatty. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that we talk uh, about that, just in terms of how paid family leave can be particularly connected to kind of uh, evangelical pro-family concerns. The U.S. has never had a guaranteed paid family leave program. And it's probably, you know, by now everyone might be sick of hearing that we're one of the few industrialized nations that have failed to do so. It does continue to be true, but that's sort of where we are. But we actually have a good track record for understanding the value of paid family leave from the handful of U.S. states that have implemented it, as well as other nations in the world. And one of the most consistent findings is that guaranteeing paid family leave, paid parental leave, increases the amount of time that parents are able to spend with the new child after that child is born or comes to the family through adoption. And that has really material benefits for the children and also the parents. So child health is improved. Interestingly, child health has improved even at at birth, like birth weights are better, infant mortality rates are lower. That may be in fact because there's a reduced level of stress on the mother who's carrying the child. Mother and the child's health is really linked together. We know that children are more able to breastfeed 
for and are able to do that for a longer period of time, more likely to make it to medical appointments. In the case of fathers, fathers who take at least two weeks of parental leave away from work with a new child are actually more likely to be involved in child care and the child and child interaction, you know, many months and sometimes years afterward. So there's a really good sense of like that relationship that I think as Christians we see is created and quite beautiful between parents and children. That's enabled through paid family leave. And it can have benefits that can move out into the child's life and the family's life. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Rachel, you've been working on this issue for a while. What are the things that are happening in other countries? Maybe it's the cultural attitudes around the relationship between governments and families might be, or maybe it's a different expectation about taxes. What are the things that the conditions that make that possible in many other countries that have made it so far not true or not possible here? And to what extent do you have a sense that things might be changing here? I've, I've actually kind of struggled with this question because many other countries initiated their family policies many decades ago now. So they were kind of getting started in the 50s and 60s, started expanding them, turning into a paid benefit, making it more flexible in the 70s and 80s and into now. In the U.S., we only initiated Family Medical Leave Act, which gives job protection for a new parent or caregiver for 12 weeks after a child is born. We only initiated that in 1994. So it's kind of hard almost now to compare across the, <laughs> across the times, you know, why we didn't take that path. I, you know, one reason may be that in the U.S., when other families were kind of ra- moving into that or other countries were moving into the pro-family support era, you know, the U.S. initiated the Great Society programs. Those programs actually, and the aid to families with dependent children, had absorbed what was kind of the closest analogy in U.S. history, which was a mother's pension program that the U.S. had in kind of the early 20th century. And it kind of got diverted into maybe a whole separate debate in the U.S. about anti-poverty policy. So that's one possibility of how things sort of ended up differently. And then more recently, I think we've had the conversation is centered more around women's presence in the workplace and workforce attachment. And so we haven't really brought in kind of that deep pro-family perspective. But I do think that that's changing right now. And I think that there's a convergence of a lot of interests around finally supporting family leave. And so I'm actually pretty hopeful that the next few years might, might change our policy. From an economics perspective, is this something that particular companies are just able to afford more for their employees than 
other ones. I guess I'm just struck also by the fact that there's a huge disparity between the type of benefits that are accorded people who are professionals versus people who work in retail, for instance. And the realities between those different groups can look dramatically different. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So where paid family leave and paid family and medical leave is present in our economy as a workplace benefit, you know, it's under 20% of the workforce. It's heavily concentrated in, you know, finance, law, the sciences. That's just a handful of the workforce where employers may see it as a as a benefit to recruit a particular staff member, you know, particular profile for their workforce. And then elsewhere, it hasn't really taken hold, at least not in a kind of a robust enough way. Many workplaces offer some amount of paid time off, paid sick days, but even that kind of cobbling it together, it doesn't really reach the amount of time that you need to welcome a new child and to recover from childbirth and do all the things that just are healthy for both parents and children. There's maybe even some disincentive for employers just on their own to be the first mover in offering the leave. They may fear, for example, that in offering a robust paid family leave program, they're inviting workforce you know, employees that are going to actually have to take a lot of time off for family needs or something like that. So there's some subtle discrimination that can happen that might be inhibiting employers from doing it, or just the fact that it's kind of a life cycle benefit that they, an employer might have to absorb all at once in one year when they don't know if that employee is going to stay around for the long term. I think that's one reason why looking at it as a little bit more of a public policy, a shared program could be much more successful and could actually provide those employers with like a turnkey benefit for their staff that doesn't require them to pay the whole amount themselves. A lot of this makes sense. And I appreciate you mentioning some of the challenges there, but help me understand and deal man the, the uh, argument against it. Like what is it purely a, the government should, shouldn't tell businesses what benefits to offer their employees? Is it that this would, it would be too expensive for businesses? Like what's the argument, what's the best argument against paid family leave? Well, it depends on what model, but so the argument against mandating an employer to just provide the benefit is that that could be pretty costly for the employer. They might have to reduce staff or cut back in other ways on salary and, and benefits. And I think that's pretty understandable. You know, could work out poorly for smaller businesses, nonprofits who don't have as the kind of resources to allocate. However, you know, interestingly, we've become accustomed to thinking of it as a workplace benefit. So when you pull most Americans, they say, I want my employer to provide this benefit, even though it's hard to do. So then, you know, on the other side, you can look at it as something that's provided through a public program. The states that provide it do so through building up a a shared fund that's populated with payroll tax revenue collected from both employers and employees, and then employees apply to that state fund when it's time to get their benefits. And so then, you know, you've taken the burden off the individual employer, but there could be a reluctance to look to the state as the facilitator of that benefit. And is there a similar conservative slash libertarian reluctance about kind of the direct child tax credit? Because obviously that that also would come through taxes and then funding families. But it seems like conservatives are pretty keen on some of that. So what's the main argument against direct child tax credits? Well, there, I suppose, just a, a general fiscal conservatism, you know, just a desire to keep overall 
public budgets lower. And then, you know, there have been some concerns that that benefit would be unattached to the parent's working status. And so, for example, if a parent could receive that tax credit and it's refundable or it's offered as a child allowance, as in the case of the Romney plan, it may serve as a disincentive to the parents working out in the job market. Although it's kind of interesting, right? Because it kind of all the arguments against these things tend to cut in different directions, right? Some are, in some in some cases, folks are concerned that parents are, you know, would be incentivized to go into the job market in the case of childcare funding. And in other cases, there's a concern that parents might be disincentived from working. So I think it's kind of con- confusing. <laughs> yeah, I had seen from some folks on Twitter who are interested in family-centered public policy that there was this concern in some ways that if the government only funded universal pre-K and so forth, it would be then in many ways supporting, you know, putting your kids in institutions rather than keeping them at home versus, which is what you're talking about right now about like this like tension between whether or not parents should be incentivized to work or not. Can you talk a little bit about that discussion I'm sure there's a lot there to kind of unpack about what we believe about families, how we think kids are best raised, but it'd be helpful to get some context about where our norms for what early childhood should look like in the U.S. come from. So I think part of it comes from what I'm sure you've talked about on this program, that sense in the U.S. moved into a wage-earning economy in the industrial era, that there were separate spheres, that men's work, you know, in the factory or manufacturing sites was valued because it could support a family at home and, you know, a wife and children who were not working, in fact. And so there's kind of a value that was attached to women not working, even though over time there have been women working, women of color for many generations worked, and even now kind of work at at higher rates than white women in the U.S. So there's a kind of a you know, historic view that women are not in the workplace and to kind of incent that might you know, disrupt the kind of balance that families have found. But at the same time, we've had a conversation about the worthiness of any kind of recipient of a public benefit. And their pressure has been placed on public benefit recipients to be working. So I think those two different kind of historical streams have placed, you know, kind of places in the crosshairs of a dilemma. You know, it's very hard to find a family policy that wouldn't encourage one or the other. You know, my view is probably starting, you know, let's start with the things that we know work well. So paid family leave, we know works well. It looks like the child tax credit and some of these child allowances could be widely embraced and supported. And if we could build on that as a starting point and then begin to look at you know, what a really healthy childcare system would look like, I think we'd be in a really good position. So what do we know about what actually works well for young children? Do we have any data that exists out there about their ability to thrive in pre-K daycare versus being at home with a parent or a grandparent? What we kind of understand about that discussion or if there's other factors that end up playing a larger role than just where these children are spending the most of their time? I think that's actually pretty hard. And I don't know that we've even come up with good measures for what what that looks like, or at least ones that apply really broadly. A couple of things I can say is that, you know, if you look at, for one, parental preferences, they really vary. You know, many parents do want 
some work and they also want some time at home. So I think we can intuit from that, that parents do have a sense that their presence with their children at home is valuable and is making an investment. I think we also have some data that shows where families are really stretched and parents need to work and need to make some kind of childcare work. They often rely on fairly informal childcare arrangements. And there is some indication that those are not as helpful for child development as would be kind of a more formalized pre-K program. But then I think to get much further than that, I don't, at least I don't have at my fingertips really good data for what, you know, across the board that well-being looks like. And the preferences for families do really vary from family to family. And I think we should kind of be sensitive to that rather than sort of pushing one one entire (laughs) approach or another on the whole population. Can you think of any instance in this space of family public policy where there's been a great disparity between the good intentions for a program and the actual impact that they had on families? I can't say in the moment. I think we should do a lot of listening about the child care question as we proceed into that space for some of the reasons that I mentioned before and some of the questions you raised, Ted, like just enacting kind of a fairly uniform pre-K program, start to squeeze out the, the kind of diversity of programs that already exist for young kids and that are more locally based. I think that would be the area I'd, I would proceed with caution, but also that caution means Christians becoming involved in that policy conversation and sharing what's worked in their communities or getting involved in that kind of work in their community so that it isn't kind of a debate that's entirely about out there are folks who are interested in a you know government takeover of childcare and here are the families that have nothing to do with childcare. So I don't think that's the case. One of the things I'm interested about related to that is where we talked about the role of faith-based early childhood institutions. Just thinking about the way in which Christianity, especially early Christianity, was so radically countercultural to the you know kind of Greco-Roman view of of what children. There's a great book came out a bunch of years ago by a Norwegian historian, O.M. Backe, uh, called When Children Became People. You know, it's about how Christianity really, really changed it and said, actually, children are people with a hot, with high infant mortality rates, with kind of just cultural views of, of children, and just with that kind of primacy of the adult male, the freeborn uh, adult male. Uh, children were a little bit more treated like plants until they reached uh, a certain age. There's a number of historians and sociologists who've written about kind of that early practice of exposing or, you know, abandoning unwanted infants and how Christians became known as the people that would go, go rescue those kids. And one of the things that's interesting in Backey's book is he talks about how people of all different kind of socioeconomic classes were practicing this kind of abandonment of unwanted infants, leaving them out in the cold, leaving them to die. But the other thing that's in there is talking about the kind of rich parents were very, very much like they just kind of gave the kids to slaves to raise for a while. The Christians were like, no, we're going to have, you know, parents really focus on, on children, you know, especially the teachings of Jesus about, you know, having faith like a child and, you know, the have the children come to me. You know, just the early church wasn't universal in their attitudes towards childhood, but they they prioritized childhood in a way that was unusual for that era. And that's often, for me, caused me to pause the thing, like, how should I as a Christian 
be viewing my children or just children in general differently than others. It's also, you know, very much brought home the fact that like women were the same kind of like disregarded as people. Christians started to change that attitude as well. And also just the way in which Christian attitudes towards child care communally, like handing your children to slaves, be like, I don't want to deal with this. You deal with it and I'll, I'll take them later on versus like handing your children to a community to raise with you. That's radically different, even though it can maybe externally look different at the surface level. As you've dealt with some of these family policy questions, how uniquely Christian, you know, obviously, you know, uh, there's a lot of, you know, general revelation and, and ways in which Christianity has already informed what we think is good in our society. Uniquely Christian attitudes can help to shape and form our view of like, what is good early childhood, you know, in a 21st century context. So as a parent, I am both extremely engaged in my own parenting and I have, you know, (laughs) strong ideas about how it should be done and things that I love about the process of parenting. Some of which do feel very connected to my faith. Obviously the, you know, the invitation to nurture the image of God in another person is just so sacred. And it's a journey that's full of wonder because as a parent, you're part of it, but it's also unfolding and you have to wait in God's own time for it to truly happen. And I'd also say that I have gained a lot from the patterns and practices of the church around time in my parenting. So the idea that, you know, we are creatures who live in time with seasons of work and rest and worship, you know, that has been really important to me as a parent to think about how am I kind of stewarding the time of my family in ways that enable my, my kids to flourish. That said, you know, then when we think more broadly in the public policy arena, are those the specific ideas we want to bring? You know, does that translate into a particular kind of public policy? I'm not sure, but I do think that we can bring a real sense of sacredness to the process of parenting and, and family more broadly, right? It's Family caregiving for someone who's disabled or elderly is one of the ways that we're honoring the sacredness of life in all of its phases. I think we can bring that into the public conversation by really emphasizing the importance of that time and that connection, uh, recognizing that it's different than all other time and all other kinds of work, um, and that it's, you know, it's deserving of some protection. Um, parenting time and family time shouldn't be colonized or reduced to something else. And that's a, a potentially a danger in our kind of in our very individualistic society and economy. I've seen some pushback, I don't know, in the past five, 10 years when reading about this from folks who may be a little bit more skeptical about why government should be invested in the family unit and why that's something that they might want to support from a tax policy point of view, or in this case, from other government funding or programs. What would you say to people who don't necessarily see this as the unit that the government should be investing in in that way? Well, from a public standpoint, the family is nurturing the next generation of citizens, workers, teachers, neighbors. So I think we do have an important public interest in supporting family life and family caregiving without some intentionality. It is something that can get lost in an economy that tends to focus on the here and now, you know, the productivity in the moment, as opposed to 
investment in nurture that can take, you know, many years and decades. I don't think it should be too far-fetched for us to see the value just for our society to be able to renew itself by investing in the family. I wanted to like read this particular tweet that I saw that surprised me that came out yesterday that I think maybe represents, if not maybe family skepticism, then like just a different version on this. So New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, am I saying that correctly? Had tweeted, tired, which is, um, this is a meme that's on Twitter, right? Tired colon families wired affordable childcare and universal paid leave and received a lot of pushback specifically on this idea of like being tired of families, which I recognize it would take a little bit more to like unpack (laughs) that meme. But I think that there were a number of people who felt like that was... (laughs) Maybe not. What is this idea of kind of like being over families? I'm just going to say that there is another tweet that follows this that followed sometime later that said, inspired, quote, spending less time deliberately misreading tweets and doing anything, literally anything to help exhausted families. But I did pick up on that. There was this sense of like, well, why why would families be pitted against all of this? And I don't know if that's something that you've picked up on at all. If people were just deliberately misreading this tweet or if that there is this type of skepticism sometimes of, I don't know, overly focusing on the family or whatever. Yeah, I think that can happen. You know, relative to the tweet, I think she she failed the meme was the biggest complaint. (laughs) (laughs) And that takes a lot for me to notice that, but... (laughs) Because I don't think I could have successfully executed that meme, but... You know, there's sometimes a feeling that family gets too much focus. And and I do want to slow down and mention that in particular, I've encountered it in conversation about the church, right? And I think that is really important to be mindful where family can become such a focal point and a value that members of the church who are single, who are widowed, who are in other life stages, feel like they're marginalized in, in, in their importance. Our understanding of family and the kind of covenantal relationships that make up family uh, at CPJ, we not the family at CPJ, but as CPJ thinks about it, we're really thinking about a covenant relationship that can include not just parents and children, but siblings and cousins and nephews and extended family. It's a pretty inclusive concept and one a lot of us have or could have a stake in. Those long-term relationships where we give um, reciprocal care and receive support. Finally, as we just wrap this particular discussion, what are, you know, very practical ways that you might encourage Christians to do a better job of supporting families? I mean, we can think of this from like a, maybe a Christian institution point of view or Christian churches aren't necessarily going to be things that are mandated by the federal government or by the state government, but things that would actually make a real change in the lives of the people that are a part of those institutions? Well, one of the things that we've done at the Families Valued Project is to articulate kind of five norms within the workplace that are family supportive. And I think among these are practices that any organization, any church or nonprofit could adopt. And those include inclusion, first of all, upfront of family caregiving as a value. And that simply means that you know, when somebody is part of the institution, part of a workplace, they're there as a human. And to be a human often means to have some family relationships and sometimes family responsibilities. And that can be something that's named as part of the organizational values. 
you can think about how even space is used in the workplace. Is there space for nursing mothers? Is there space for families and children? Often in churches, that's there, but it's something to be aware of. You can think about how time is managed. Are there flexible work arrangements? You can think about how compensation and benefits are organized. Again, there's no reason why an organization, if they have the means, shouldn't provide paid time off for caregiving or paid family leave. And then just throughout, there's this culture. There's mindfulness about culture that's family supportive. So those five things are something that any organization can do alongside kind of watching along with all of us what happens with these big family policy ideas that have been introduced. Thank you so much, Rachel. For people who have questions, comments, stories, I feel like there's a lot of good stories that you guys may have in your own lives. We invite you to email us and share your experiences with us. We are at podcasts with an S at ChristianityToday.com. Podcast with an S at ChristianityToday.com. And on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments. Everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy. Also, you usually the time when people talk about their families, I have noticed. <laughs> Ted, is that going to be the theme of your precious moment today? I'm going to go with the board game this week. I was able to once again get together with my board game group, a group of guys that I've, I've been getting together with for years, playing games together. We only got together once during the COVID, COVID time. So we got together again properly, social distance and all that, all that jazz. Although I, I'm, one of, I'm like the last to get vaccinated in that group. Yeah, um, no more social distancing after that. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what the guidance is, right? Two, in two weeks, I can maybe not have to wear a mask. That would be great. Uh, or with, with, with my game group. So We played a game that I have probably mentioned before, but is a special game now, Terraforming Mars, where you are, you know, unsurprisingly, terraforming the planet Mars. The cool thing about it was that my son for Christmas got a special version of the game that includes all these like big plasticky pieces. So it's like this major upgrade, $100 upgrade to the game. with <laughs> Hundreds of pieces that make the game cooler to play. There's so many fun board games. And then there's enough of a board game culture now that you can really like make the board games that you really love have these really great pieces that just make it more enjoyable. So like when you place a forest, instead of placing a little cardboard thing that says forest on it, you have a little, this, I thought it was 3D printed, but it's actually, you know, plastic injection. But a nice 3D green forest with a bunch of trees on it. <laughs> you place it on Mars and it's cool. So by the end of it, you know, it's it, it's this beautiful 3D looking thing. It's very cool. So anyway, I played that with my son because he, it was a Christmas gift, but because of COVID and shipping with China and all that stuff. It took until now for it to arrive. Played it once with my son, played it once with my game group in rapid succession within about a 24-hour period. Played that game twice. So fun. I if would you play like, it with you too if we were still in the same area. Yes, it does take a while, but let me let me throw this out. For people who want to give it a shot, they're not sure they want to invest all that much money in the game. There is a delightful app, at least it works for, for iOS, of Terraforming Mars. Worth it. It's probably the best board game app that I've played. You know, it works well as a two-player game. It works well as a four-player game. It's not going to be a half hour and you're done. It's a, it's a, it's a couple hours of gameplay, but it's not complicated to learn. So Terraforming Mars was my precious moment this week. Morgan, what was your precious moment of the week? They were 
a number, but the one I'm going to share is the fact that, hmm, I want to say three years ago, I went on a tour in Lyon, France. It was a walking tour and our tour group really got along super well. And there were a bunch of interesting people in the group. One of them was an opera singer and that was cool. And she sang opera for us afterward. But another one was this woman who was traveling with her mom and visiting France for like the third time that year. And she went a lot because she was actually a tandem surf champion. And apparently tandem surf is really Uh big in France. So she's actually a two-time world champion of tandem surf, which for people who do not know what that is, essentially, yes, there are two people on a surfboard and one of them basically doing like acrobatics while surfing. I kept in touch briefly with her. And then last week we had the chance to hang out for a while and get lunch. And then I actually went out surfing with her on Sunday. So she is. I mean, did you tandem (laughs) surf with her? Were you on the same board as her? I really hope that she will actually teach me. She's usually the flyer though. So I don't think she could like Uh, pick me up. Usually the guys that base you are like really big. (laughs) She is not used to being in that position of picking someone up. But I'm hopeful that maybe she will. When we were texting a couple months ago, I was like, can you coach me? And she was like, maybe after the pandemic is over, I'll teach you some stuff. So maybe that will happen. But also it was just a treat seeing her again. And she's like been actually extremely helpful and practical with ideas and suggestions for other things since I got here. So hey, Tiffany, great to see you here in Hawaii. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, Rachel. I live in the close-in suburbs to D.C., and our region is about to encounter the big cicada emergence. Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) So my daughter, who's eight, learned about it at school. You know, it's a great science example. We'll see what it is like to live through it. But she decided to warn us and the community about this eventuality. So she's created a sign kind of like what you'd see on a sandwich board. And it says <laughs> cicadas are coming. The end is near and posted <laughs> it outside of our house. <laughs> so that's our little doomsday message. I'm hoping the end is not near, but I don't know what it's going to be like when we, when the cicadas emerge and take over our neighborhood. We'll see. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. Cicada, they're they're fun just so long as you're not like at an outdoor concert. They are they're, you know, <laughs> it's or trying to take an well, afternoon nap. But they they're they're you know, this kind of fun cicada. The, we've been like the, the neighbors are covering we're covering our trees. So the tree like all the little plants look like they're shrouded in anticipation. It does have a little <laughs> bit of a doomsday feeling. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's a good good it's a good way to end the uh you know the COVID <laughs> season with a with a you know, know. infestation of locust like <laughs> creatures, right? So it's like yep. you know. <laughs> how long are they supposed to be there for, Rachel? They're supposed to peak. I think around Memorial Day, they'll wane in the first few weeks of June. It'll be really interesting. But we don't, you know, we, we don't know because they reemerge so infrequently. We don't know, like, has their territory been paved over? Will they, you know, will they reemerge to a world that they were expecting or not? It, it feels a little bit, a little bit of pathos there. That's great. Where can people find you uh, online on the social media? I am on Twitter and Instagram at Rachel Hope and. The cicada sign is actually visible on Instagram if you want to see it. I I should be featuring more of my daughter's artwork. It's really fun. Very cool. 
Thank you so much for joining us. That is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. It's produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps and the transcript is done by Boon Shola and Yvonne Sue. For people who are interested in supporting the show, again, you can go rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and you can send us emails at podcast at christianity.com. We will see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?